This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about authoritarianism, and by extension, the so-called death of democracy. Now, there's a lot to be said about authoritarians right now. Most notably, there's been a war raging in Ukraine for the past four months that's upending the global order. And that fight is being waged by the unapologetic authoritarian president of Russia, Vladimir Putin. And yet, that war had not even started when we were first envisioning this Crosscut Festival panel, which took place in early May. We were hoping for a conversation around Putin. Even before his attempted conquest of Kiev, his authoritarian rap sheet was plenty long, what with all the election meddling and persecution of his political opponents. And then, of course, there was the creeping authoritarianism in our own country— most visible in an anti-democratic insurrection by supporters of Donald Trump on January 6, 2021. That effort was pushed back. But many Americans are still enthralled to the former president's big lie about the 2020 election. So what to make of the state of American democracy is somewhat up for grabs. You'll hear the host here, journalist David Korn, attempting to draw parallels between Putin's Russia and modern America. And you'll hear some good-natured disagreement, especially from Russian-born author Rebecca Koffler, who delivers a bit of a reality check about a third of the way through this talk. It's an instructive and kind of delightful moment in a very serious conversation with a very packed panel. Koffler is a U.S. intelligence expert and author of Putin's Playbook, Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America. She's worked with the Defense Intelligence Agency and the CIA to brief the White House, the Pentagon, and NATO on Russian affairs. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University. She's the author, most recently, of Strongmen, From Mussolini to the Present. And she writes for CNN and other media outlets on threats to democracy around the world. And Stephen Levitsky is a professor of government at Harvard University, whose research focuses on Latin America and the developing world. He is the author of Competitive Authoritarianism and the co-author of How Democracies Die. Now, that last title makes things sound pretty dark. But this panel is more about awareness than despair. When the talk was originally broadcast as part of the Crosscut Festival, its title was Are Authoritarians Winning? And the answer to that question, well, it's complicated. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Ruth, Stephen, Rebecca, welcome. Thank you. Um, well, Ruth, Ruth, let's cut to the chase. There's one authoritarian we care most about these days. Is Vladimir Putin winning? Uh, he's, he's certainly not um, winning in terms of what elites in Russia have prided him on, which is bringing prestige to the world. Um, he fell into the classic autocrat trap. Uh, I think he, he saw his power at its peak 
and he miscalculated severely. He didn't game out this war. He did all of the things that autocrats, late, I call them late stage autocrats do. He didn't listen to experts, he's the expert. And so the economy's in shambles. He's revitalized NATO against him. So I wouldn't call that winning. Uh, excuse me, Rebecca, let me turn to you. Um, everyone wants to know what Putin's end game is in Ukraine. Feel free to tell us if you have a clue. But more important, can you give us your best guess as to how he's thinking about what's happening with Ukraine these days? Sure. Uh, I agree with Ruth that uh, Putin is not winning if we were to define uh, victory in the sense that uh, typically the West defines uh, victory. He is militarily, specifically tactically uh, losing, and he must know this. Uh, his military has performed atrociously. Uh, the command and control is abysmal. And uh, he is waging war effectively on uh, civilian population, which is a carefully calculated, cold-bloodedly calculated part of military strategy. But uh, if you look at what his original mission was for invading Ukraine, which was a, uh, at the core of it was a purely military calculation, and that is to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO because uh, the Russian establishment, security establishment, has uh, declared NATO to be its top security threat. Right, the distance between St. Petersburg and the um, second largest city in Russia, I I'm sorry, NATO forces and St. Petersburg, which is the second largest city in Russia, has uh, reduced from the times of the Cold War to today from a thousand miles to um, 100 miles. And so that proximity is what constitutes grave concern to Putin. That is why he drew the red line over Ukraine, uh, that we are in a fight with Russia to control. Ukraine is, is a vital part of uh, Eurasia. So in that sense, as long as Putin engages in a protracted grinding conflict, even if he has to put his soldiers into the wood chipper, as Segdaf Austin said, which he's doing, he doesn't care. Uh, he is winning in a sense of achieving that mission, even though he's waging devastation, annihilating, you know, Ukrainian people, women, children, the elderly. In that sense, he's winning while making a laughing stock of his military among Western analysts. Stephen, let's bring this home. President Joe Biden and others have said that by helping President Zelensky of Ukraine and his fight and his nation's fight for democracy, we are fighting for democracy everywhere, including at home. Do you think that Americans make that connection and that a majority of Americans even realize there are ongoing risks to democracy here? Well, some some Americans, I think the, the view that we're in a global battle to defend democracy and that Ukraine is a uh, is a, a major site in that global battle. I think that's reduced mostly to academics, diplomats, the commentariat. I don't think that's a, an everyday concern of Americans. 
Americans are concerned, a majority of Americans are concerned about American democracy, but for very different reasons. In fact, polls show that, re that Republicans are more concerned about American democracy than, than Democrats are because the vast majority of Republicans are convinced that the 2020 election was stolen and that we have an illegitimate president. So um, America, I think Americans are mostly focused on, on the state of American democracy. They have very different views about what's wrong and what needs to happen. So that's really interesting. If, if, if Republicans are concerned about democracy, but they're concerned about it for false reasons, you know, based on, you know, um, untrue premises, conspiratorial thinking, uh, being led by a fellow with an authoritarian manner. Uh, you know, what are the implications of that? I mean, people on the left, people in the middle, others, the academics that you name, you know, your book and others out there always talk about how we need to protect and save democracy and ensure democracy. Uh, but if the people care about it most think that the way you ensure democracy is by being on the side of an authoritarian who's trying to actually undermine democracy, you know, we're kind of down a rabbit hole there, aren't we? We are. We're, we're in a mess. And um, it, it, it's, not the, it's not the first time. I mean, there are many, um, as Ruth knows very well, many authoritarian forces, many populist forces, many authoritarian movements that have destroyed democracy in the name of, of democracy uh, and whose supporters fully believe that they are, that they are uh, Democrats and that they represent the people. I think in the case of Republicans, in, uh, for many of them, it's, it's, a, it's not so much a matter of believing that the election was stolen, that Biden's an authoritarian, but wanting to, to believe that. Uh, the Republican rank and file is deeply distressed with the rise of multiracial democracy, uh, feels deeply threatened at, at its loss of uh, um, the, 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 the core white Christian base of the Republican Party um, is feeling a tremendous, tremendous loss at, um, of, of, of status in, in American society and has radicalized and to the point that um, that they are that, in fact, they will tell polls that they're willing to go a long way to preserve basically the, the the version of America that they grew up with, that they feel like they're losing. So we, we have a radicalized Republican Party. That's the great threat to American democracy. And, and, and Ruth, on the basis of your work, uh, what happens when, you know, here we have a two-party system, but Republicans represent, you know, about a third of the population, not everybody's part of a party, but if a third of a population, which is not a majority, but a big chunk, if they're radicalized and they're on the side of an authoritarian uh, who doesn't respect democratic institutions and is telling a big lie, what does that do to a country? How do you, how, you know, are there countries that have been in situations like this and have kind of gotten through it okay? Um. It's what does it do to a country? It, it legitimates, um, you know, the kind of it, it legitimates violence. It legitimates disinformation. And one of the one of the saddest things is that a lot of and I'm not speaking about the GOP and all of the um, influencers and deep, you know, dark money backers, but a lot of these people are just being duped because it's one of the oldest uh, tricks in the right-wing playbook 
to go after um, a, a freely elected, you know, sitting Democratic president and say he's an authoritarian. And this was used in Chile before the 1973 coup, complete with truck convoys and supply chain shortages. And there's all kinds of signs. Um, and people, the people who Trump, you know, has around him, uh, Michael Flynn and Roger Stone and Bannon, they have a lot of, they have decades of expertise in wrecking democracies. But what we're seeing is you, you have the breakdown of the fabric of civil society. And the, one of the smartest and most devastating things the Republicans have done is uh, politicize schools and um, go to the heart of what people care about families. Also what they call bodily autonomy. You can't force me to have a mask. You can't force me to have something injected, a vaccine. And, and so these are, these are very, um, these are, are ways that they've mobilized mothers, they've politicized mothers. And so you see that, you know, school boards and local city councils are now um, sites of um, hostility um, instead of community. And that's part of the authoritarian playbook. You get, you get people to turn on each other. And there's many other things going on in society that are going in this direction. It's very tragic. Well, and of course, um, when it comes to bodily autonomy, they don't want to give you autonomy when it comes to reproductive rights. But uh, that's, that could be another panel. Um, you know, Rebecca, we, we look at, you know, what's happening in Russia and the important role of, of disinformation there and really a, a sort of Orwellian disinformation in that, you know, there are Nazis running Ukraine we, you know, we're not, we didn't invade, they invaded us or they attacked us and we just went in to help people and we're just giving out food and candy and services. Um, and, you know, I'm not there, but I assume uh, 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 there are certainly reporting that indicates that a lot of Russians believe this and buy this. Um, can you sort of talk for a moment about the parallels between that and what we see here which may not be as dramatic in that people will say a war is not a war, but in believing you know, Trump's lies about the election or something like that. I mean, we do see disinformation here playing you know, a tremendous role in, 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 in our politics. So, uh, yes, you're absolutely correct. A lot of uh, Russians believe what Putin is saying because most of the Russian media is state controlled. There's virtually uh, no media outlet, especially right now, that um, dares to critique Putin because uh, he made sure that a law was adopted, that any kind of criticism would be punishable all the way up to like years, years of jail, right? Um, I am stunned actually uh, having heard what I just uh, heard, uh, my dear fellow Americans, and I'll just go ahead and at the risk of being perceived as a pariah, uh, here, I'm going to go ahead and uh, respectfully disagree with what I just heard. And please, I please, assume, go ahead. I assume this is okay uh, because yeah, yeah. we, after all, live in America, uh, which is still a democracy. And um, democracy has always been um, 
sort of reliant on uh, plurality of opinions. So first, if I may, I'd like to push back on the first analytic line that is um, uh, democracy is the reason why the United States and NATO are now engaged. And I'm sorry if I'm uh, if you perceive that I would be putting words in your mouth, but effectively um, we're waging a proxy war right now. Right. There's a war. It's not about Ukraine and Russia. It's about a uh, proxy war between the United States, NATO on one side and Russia on the other. Right. And democracy to me has nothing to do with that for two reasons. Uh, first, there's a long term bipartisan uh, U.S. policy that used to be highly classified, but now it is in the open. And uh, this policy states that the United States will do everything possible to prevent uh, Russia from emerging as a dominant power in Eurasia. Right. And this is why we are supplying weaponry to Ukraine. We are ensuring uh, that they receive proper training all the way uh, to supplying real time intelligence because the United States uh, is driven just like Russia by real politic motivations. But it's dressing it up uh, as a democracy narrative because that's what uh, resonates with American public, right? Democracy. Similarly, Putin is, li is lying to the Russian people, saying that his special operation is designed to denazify and to demilitarize Ukraine. He chose that narrative because he knows that his audience is more likely to, um, to, to buy that. Okay, because uh, having lost 20 million people, the Russians are, you know, allergic to uh, Nazism, fascism, and any of those things. So that's my first pushback. Uh, Ukraine is in no danger uh, of becoming democracy anytime soon, just like Russia wasn't. You know, remember, we tried that back in the 90s after the collapse of the Soviet Union. We tried that in many other places, and, and it failed, right? So, and the second thing, uh, I'm sorry for taking uh, a little bit of a time. I disagree uh, very strongly um, that GOP at large is radicalized. It's basically like only very small uh, number of people that are potentially on the right who are radicalized. Saying that the entire GOP is radicalized is basically like Putin saying that the entire you know, uh, Ukrainian military consists of Nazis, although, you know, the Azov Battalion that does have Nazi and ultra-right uh, nationalist element and was indeed incorporated in the Ukrainian military, it's a very small percentage, only uh, two uh, percent. I, I, Just, I just let me one, one, um, 30 seconds or oh, 20 seconds. So two percent of Ukrainians uh, who elected Zelensky identify with Nazis. So it's a very small percentage. So I disagree with that. Yeah. But I think it's a healthy discussion that we are having right yeah. now. It's a very important one because I don't recognize the country that I came to 
you know, 30 years ago when we are so polarized that we can't even have these types of very, very important discussions. Thank you Steve, for letting me I know, say. I know you want you want to say something, Steve. I'll, I'll just say something first. And that one, just, you know, to the point about the GOP being radicalized, I mean, if you look at some of the polling numbers, and the, the it's a majority of people of Republicans of self-identified Republican voters who say they believe Trump's big lie about the election. And you know, I, I don't know what the number is now, but a couple of years ago, a majority of Republicans said they believe that Obama was a secret Muslim and was not born in majority the United States. Majority of Republicans. Yes, yes, that? yeah, yeah. So the numbers on the Republic and Trump has scored record numbers in terms of support among Republicans. You know, you always, a president, an ex-president, always does well with his party. But usually it's like in the 80%, 70%, 80%. There are people in your party who don't like you, and many other things. You know, Trump, after he, particularly after he was impeached, hit 95% approval rating amongst Republicans. So there is, I mean, I think there's data to show that more so than in the past, with either Democrats or Republicans, the current Republicans are are fixated and affixed to Donald Trump as not just the leader of the party, but the reason for the party. They they they're not you know they're you know it's not about principle ideology. He's 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 heterodoxy heterodoxical on some key Republican issues, whether it's trade deficits or whatever you. Uh, it's it, he has made the party about him, which gets of course to the whole notion of what authoritarians tend to do in politics. But, you know, Steve, you wanted to jump in here, Stephen. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, a, a poll done by the American Enterprise Institute early last year found that, I can't remember if it's 56 or 57, 56 or 57% of self-identified Republicans believe that America that America's way of life is changing so fast that we may have to use force to save it. That's radical. VDEM has an index, uh, what it calls an illiberalism index, which measures parties' tolerance of opposition, tolerance of pluralism, really basic democratic stuff. Traditional center-right parties in Europe, the British territories, the Christian uh, Democrats in Germany, the, the conservatives in Canada, score close to zero on this index. 20 years ago, under George W. Bush, the Republicans scored at around 0.3. This goes from zero to one. The Republicans scored at about 0.3, which is a little more illiberal than European center-right parties, but reasonable, not, not that far. Today, the Republicans are close to 0.75, which is almost identical to Fidesz in Hungary, the AKP in Turkey, and the BJP in India. The Republican Party today is by a variety of measures much closer to far-right parties and authoritarian parties in Europe and Asia than it is to conservative parties, recognizable conservative parties in the industrialized West. How that is not radicalization of an entire party is beyond me. Uh, Ruth, can you, know, can you talk a little about how we got here to this point? You know, you know the, the Republican Party I'm writing a book on this, so it's on my mind. You know, has always tried to exploit fear and paranoia, whether it was McCarthyism in the 50s, or they worked with segregationists and the Southern strategy in the 60s. The Tea Party was, you know, full of crazy conspiratorial ideas about um, 
Obama implementing socialism to destroy the country so he could become a dictator. I mean, they've always have flirted with extremism, uh, but they've always also tried to have a plausible deniability to it. You know, you know twin it with upbeat language like R Ronald Reagan's optimism and so forth. But, you know, in the last, you know, four, five, six years, we've seen that they haven't dropped, they, they, they've dropped the niceties and they've gone full bore on Democrats, the opposition, this gets to Stephen's point, is a threat to the country. I get, I get 20 emails a day from Trump and others. The radical socialist Democrats want to come to your neighborhood, Rebecca, your neighborhood, and destroy it. Destroy your neighborhood and your way of life that you moved here for. And, they are, and this is Biden, and he's being used by dark, sinister forces, George Soros and all these others. I mean, this is not just Alex Jones talking. This is coming from every major arm of the Republican Party. They've all fallen in lockstep behind Trump. And it seems, you know, if you look at this, I guess, with the, with the perspective of time, Ruth, you know, it, it's happened very quickly. I mean, is, you know, does this mirror what, mm -hmm. what's happened in, in other societies that have gone in this direction? Well, what, what's extraordinary, I mean, it never is going to look the same. And that's why some people can't, can't see what's happening. But there, there are certain authoritarian dynamics that Trump knew very well. And he came in. It's quite extraordinary what he did, because uh, if you look at, um, so Mussolini created his party or other, many of them, uh, the successful autocrats were either they founded their parties or they were there for a long time, um, including Berlusconi who had a kind of authoritarian leadership in a democracy, he founded his party. So here's Trump, who used to be a Democrat. He's an opportunist. And he comes in, he takes over this party, which was ready to be taken over because of the Tea Party. And as you said, it's become, it had become more of an intolerant party. And what he added was the leader cult. What he added was um, making people feel good about lawlessness, rewarding lawlessness, and so over in a very short time, um, the whole political culture of the GOP um, shifted to uh, an, what I consider an authoritarian political culture. With, with, and that's why during the 2016 election, which was a watershed, what do you do with a political opponent just because you have an opponent, you lock them up? That's not what Democrats say. Nor do Democrats say they're going to stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone. That's, that's what Duterte says. So the, the frame of reference for Trump was, was other autocrats. And, and so Trump, he, he took this party and he imposed this kind of authoritarian leadership on it. And one of the most frightening things is not only uh, that uh, large groups in America became political enemies. So you had older enemies like people of color, um, immigrants, and he added new enemies, which are like the press, um, you know, the fake news, enemy of the people. And, and, but he also imposed an authoritarian discipline on his own party, where by the time we were at the second impeachment in February 2021, there were Republicans who voted to impeach him, and they had to buy body armor because they and their families were getting threatened. So this is not, this is not what Democrats do. And then the final thing I'll say is January 6th, the fact that this coup attempt happened and they didn't discard Trump on January 7th, 
what did they do? Instead, they doubled down. And this is has had a huge radicalizing effect on the GOP. And indeed, uh, the GOP released a statement that said they believe that January 6th was, quote, legitimate political discourse. And the final um, point I want to make is Ron DeSantis. I've been writing a lot about him, watching him, because here's somebody who was a Reagan conservative who, um, when people like Trump come along, the system populates with imitators and they learn the lessons of what you, what you need to do to get ahead in the new GOP, which is radicalized. And so he's completely, um, he's, he's building his own little mini autocracy there in Florida. And he's no longer a Reaganite, he's a Trumpist, uh, even imitates his hand gestures. So these are all uh, big picture movements and developments that, in my opinion, show uh, radicalization and um, what they call autocratization, you know, becoming more autocratic. Well, um, Rebecca, if, um, if we're looking for any signs of hope about autocracy, not taking deeper root here in the United States, uh, let's go back to Putin for a second and the war in Ukraine. Uh, in the long run, you know, or even the medium run, do you think he pays a price for this? Do you think, you know, an autocrat can go too far and, you know, create a, a counter reaction that, you know, that will not help him eventually? So, so he is already paying the price, as uh, Ruth pointed out in the beginning. You know, Russia is becoming a pariah on world stage, right? Akin to uh, North Korea, Iran. Uh, the Russian people are bearing the basically the brunt of the economic sanctions. The impact um, is really not on the elites. You know, let's look at the oligarchs. Okay, they're not going to have five yachts. They're going to have two, right? And uh, But it's the Russian people who are impacted by that. So uh, he is already paying the price. If what you meant was, is he going to be ousted? Is he going to be poisoned or removed or like... Uh, you know, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham suggested, or um, President Biden, this man can no longer remain in power. No, that's just not how things work in Russia. In fact, um, Putin's popularity skyrocketed since the beginning of the special operation. Um, it's at 83% right now. So um, yes, in terms of the hope, um, I strongly disagree with you all, uh, respectfully, Ruth, with what you just stated that uh, about the radicalization. Again, I'm not an academic. I can't cite to you statistics of um, how many people view you know, themselves as radical. Uh, I'm a former intelligence officer. I analyze the blue force you know, uh, I'm sorry, the red force rather in order to help the blue to devise a strategy to beat them, right? I, uh, Putin is my target, has been for many years. I also a person who uh, came to this country, fled the former Soviet Union uh, more than 30 years ago, right? And I see, I am one of those people that you guys actually call 
radicals. And do I look to you like a radical? I support freedom. I so including, you know, freedom to bear arms. I'm a full supporter of Second Amendment because and I support freedom of speech. And I believe I see the signs again. My apologize for stating this, but I believe it's important to 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 speak the truth here. I see the sign of Sovietization of the American society. My own kids um, in public schools were indoctrinated in the same manner that I was indoctrinated back in the Soviet Union. My own mother used to tell me, do not believe everything that you know the teachers are saying or the, the Soviet state is saying. I am saying the same thing to my uh, kids right now. Look at what is wrong with plurality of opinions, right? Why do we have censorship? Why do we have, um, you know, the cancel culture and all of those things? Um, people with whom I associate, regular people, not, you know, uneducated or you know, the, the deplorable types. I know many, many people who are normal, highly educated, they are Trump supporters because they believe in freedom in this country. And I believe that it is so important right now. I, I assume you guys know, research my background before you invited me here. And I think I'm thankful and appreciative that we're having this discussion. But these are my beliefs. If, if you want to, you know, go for it. That, you know, it's fair enough. Uh, Stephen, um, you know, Trump incited a riot. You know, he called on people and he did, and more importantly, he did nothing while it was happening. I mean, I think that's the real tell here. You know, he can get off with saying, well, I didn't, my words didn't actually say go there and beat up and try to kill officers. You know, he can get, but he did nothing. He sat there and watched and the first person accounts are that he even enjoyed it and thought it was good because it would help him with his master plan of, of, of putting off the certification so that he could try to rig the system. Um, but if you believe in, you know, that democracy is, you know, is in freedom are um, sort of uh, 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 equitable, comparable or, or invested in Trump retaining power, right? You can justify all these things. And so we seem to be in a Venus Moore situa situation, right? Where people look at that event as a threat to democracy. Uh, other people look at it as a way to protect democracy. And I wonder, you know, what is, you know, what is the way out of this sort of hole? If you have such a black and white, you know, difference in looking at a, at a seminal event. It's a seminal event because it was a it was an attempted coup against our democratic system. There was a two month long rolling pre attempted presidential coup. And if we as a society cannot write an official history in which that goes down, not as something that there are different views on, but rather an assault on our democratic institutions an assault on our constitution, our democracy is in trouble. It reminds me a little bit of the reaction to the, uh, the riot, the, to the assault on parliament in, uh, in France in 1934, where the right sort of uh, 
apologized for the for the for the riots and 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 um, and there was never a real national consensus uh, in defense of democracy. In when 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 there are coups, one thing that we know is it is critical that the entire political elite line up and very clearly denounce and hold a, denounce the coup and and hold accountable those who are responsible for it. So what do we do? The, really, the only thing that we can do is politically defeat the Trump-led or Trumpist Republican Party. And that requires a very broad coalition uh, aligned against it. It, it. it requires a coalition that ranges from AOC to Liz Cheney. It has to include the, um, the sort of network of GW Bush Republicans who have been hiding under the table for the last six years, who in private uh, despise and fear Trump, but are unwilling to come out against him. And it, it requires that, that, a, that a wide range of politicians, religious figures, business people from the left to the right come out and embrace the report of the, of the January 6th commission and denounce what was clearly anti-democratic behavior on the part of not only Donald Trump, but the vast bulk of the Republican Party. We'll be back with more after this message. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. Um, we're going to get take some questions from the people who have been watching at, at home. And um, I'm trying to get through as many as I can. So I'm going to ask everyone to respond as quickly as you can to these questions. And uh, one question is, what, if any, opposition leadership to overcome Trump do you see within the Republican Party? And I will say right now, none. We're climbing Liz Cheney, but the, the, but the Republican Party is trying to get rid of her. We don't know if she will even win her her election. Um, she's being challenged in the Republican primary. Uh, I think at this moment in time, the Republican Party is is, is shot in the sense that uh, it is just 100% pro-Trump and will do anything that, you know, will follow him in, in, in any direction. Um, so let me move, move on to the next question. Uh, in your opinion, what is the end game or goal for those who are publicly pushing us towards autocracy? Is it purely unchecked power for those people and groups? So, yeah, so let me give that one to you, Ruth. You know, why do people want to be autocrats? Why do you want to be? I mean, I know it's good to be king, as Tom Petty says, but, you know, well, you know, where does the impulse come from? Oh, well, I was I was going to say instead that there's a reason that uh, the GOPs I was trotting over to Hungary and uh, Tucker Carlson did the extraordinary thing of broadcasting for an entire week uh, from Orban's Hungary, because, you know, what what they want is a version of what we call electoral autocracy, where you, you know, because today you don't shut down elections. It's more rare. Um, 
you keep them going, Putin has elections, uh, and then you find various ways to you know, game the system. You put uh, rivals in, in jail, you, you, know, you do electoral trickery, and we have uh, an assault on our election system at every level in the United States. And that's, we have very, and the reason this is so dangerous is that there's very old precedents, racially motivated voter suppression. But there's a new interest in, um, in this kind of autocracy. And, and Orban is like the non-Putin because Putin is uh, a little toxic to some people. And Orban is like the palatable autocrat. You don't see people falling out of windows. You don't hear about these things. And so they're all trotting over there. Even Mike Pence, who's not a big global, you know, global traveler, he was over there for the demographic summit, wishing he was in fact saying that he hoped that abortion rights would end in our country. He felt comfortable saying that in Hungary. So, so that's you know that's going forward. That's what I think many of them aim at, uh, something like that. Uh, moving on to the next question: Are we seeing a split in the global order with China and Russia and India on one side, and Europe and the U.S. largely on the other side? Where do you think this is all headed? Uh, let me go to both Rebecca and. Even on this. And so, Rebecca, you go first, but keep it brief. Sure. Um, I don't think um, it's uh, going to be fractured along the lines that the um, uh, questioner stated. Uh, Russia and China, despite the fact that they're trying to project themselves as the so-called strategic partner, uh, are more of a marriage of convenience. Russia fears China because China is uh, growing economically, militarily, and Russia is considering China threat number two after the United States and NATO. So uh, it's not going to be split that way, but they will unite to the point um, only to the extent that they can challenge uh, the United States. Stephen? I agree with Rebecca. Okay. <laughs> expand, expound. No, they, uh, they, we're heading not, not to a sort of new Cold War with, with the West, the liberal West, lined up against all the people that we can, all the illiberal forces that we consider bad guys among themselves. As Rebecca said, there are intense rivalries and differences uh, among China, uh, Russia, India still is internally divided, is not really uh, a, a, a coherent geopolitical player right now. But what we're headed towards is a much more multipolar world where the United States is one power among many in which there will be uh, important illiberal and authoritarian uh, powers. But, um, you know, the, we're not going back to the, the heady days of the 1990s. Um, but it, it's not going to be a bipolar world. It'll be a much more fragmented one in which the United States is going to have to work out uh, working relationships, partnerships, alliances with um, illiberal states as well. And, and haven't we seen with the, with the Trump years and now the Biden years that if you look at the relationship between the United States and Europe, that it is not stable in the sense that it was a lot different under Trump than it is now. If Trump were to get back in office, it would be a lot different again. I mean, there's been a lot of um, yeah. coming together over the Ukraine war. But, you know, you mentioned Orban a few, mo a few moments ago, uh, Ruth. You know, there, there, there are illiberal strains within Europe Indeed. that Europe sure. itself hasn't fully 
resolved. You know, so, you know, the whole idea of there being a U.S.-European bloc seems to me to be optimistic in the sense that they're going to continue to be differences depending on what the external circumstances are. Yeah, and the thing about autocrats is um, you have a deal with them until you don't have a deal with them. They're, they're in terms of personality, they're highly transactional and opportunistic people. And I mean, Putin knows this from, there's a reason you can't mention the Nazi Soviet pact in Russia, right? You know, they're, they're not the most reliable allies. So I agree with what was said about uh, China and Russia. But you know, this, this new, um, a pre, how would you call it, precursor to this uh, invasion of Ukraine was uh, when the national interest published a joint op-ed unprecedented of the um, Chinese and Russian ambassadors to the United States, which then was followed by a joint um, proclamation by uh, the heads of China and Russia. And it was dripping with scorn for America. And I agree that they are not going to be uh, tight-knit allies. They're, they're each just too transactional and, and could turn on the other. Um, there's a lot of rivalry. But what they are united in is bringing America to its knees. And that's, that's by every kind of hybrid warfare uh, tool possible. And so that's, that's sobering. Let me go around the horn and ask everybody, because, you know, this is a pretty heavy and somewhat discouraging topic, for something that you would, you can have a very loose definition of this, that you would count as good news or maybe just a wee bit encouraging Honestly, um, in terms of what's happening with democracy here, what's happening with the war in, in Ukraine or uh, Russia, if you want to focus on Putin, Rebecca, but uh, something that you see out there that, you know, might lead you to not give up all hope. Steve, what, Stephen, why don't you start? Look, first of all, I don't, um, I don't think the authoritarians are winning in the first place. I mean, nobody asked me this question, but um, it's basically been it's been a draw the last 15 years or so. Autocrats win some days. They win some elections. They, they, they take power in some places. They lose power in other places. And uh, so I don't I don't and I think that's going to continue for a while. I don't think we're going to see a dramatic turn in either direction. Um, so we have to take small victories. Uh, Biden's victory in 2020 was was huge. Um, Macron's victory in France was was very important. I do think, I mean, it, it's very, very, um, di- it's difficult to to, 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 to to game out the longer term consequences of a, of a major war like we're seeing in Russia. And I study political parties in Argentina, so I'm the last one who should do it. But um, Putin's failures and uh, and are, 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 are going to be are, are are a plus for for liberal democrats i mean it, it is it, we were in a in a foggy low confidence period where uh the west is wringing its hands about the failures and limitations of democracy we just got a really good case as ruth led off with uh of of why it's often perilous to live under autocracy and uh and so that's a that's a positive blow for for the liberal west rebecca so the fact uh, itself that I'm invited on your show um, is 
uh, gives me hope. This is uh, the second time that I'm having this kind of experience. Uh, first time, uh, I was about a month ago, I started speaking uh, with a person in Central Park in New York because we were both walking the dogs. And then, you know, um, I was figuring out that he's a flaming liberal and he was figuring out that I'm a rabid Republican, but we were able to conduct a civilized conversation and that is outstanding. We are agreeing on several points here, you know, on, you know, Ruth and I agree on how we see Putin and how, you know, him progressing, uh, very slowly and and uh, losing more accurately rather than progressing. Um, so I agree with uh, Stephen on several points. Um, I would like to point out real quick, if I may, I think we should be looking at people not as Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and um, liberals, but as people and Americans. My suspicion is that we both want the same thing but we just are looking at different completely you know diametrically opposing ways of getting there and i think we see the world completely differently um again what you call authoritarian like i don't call trump authoritarian um to me president biden is more of authoritarian because of some of the things that he has done but again, let's have those discussions that have normal conversations so that we can iron out the differences and get back on track because what's happening right now, authoritarians like Putin are taking advantage of the fact that our country is just torn apart and we need to unite. That's kind of my um, view. Well, um, I'll get to Ruth in one second. I, I, I just want to say that you know, having written writing about this right now, I mean, I, it, it is quite stunning to me. If you look at Donald Trump's rhetoric over the last five years, it is purposefully divisive and fear-mongering. I mean, there's just the only way you can put it. The people are coming into neighborhoods to destroy your neighborhoods, destroy your way of lives. Joe Biden's not in charge. He's There are nefarious forces behind him. They want to destroy America. Joe Biden, and you can disagree with him on policy. Yeah, sure. Doesn't say that. He does talk about Let's see where we have common ground. What can we work on together? Infrastructure, this, that, or the other thing. So it, 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 there does seem to me to be an asymmetry between how the, le the leaders of the part of these two parties approach, you know, some of these essential issues that we that we're trying to deal with, and they are setting the tones, and for for people within their party, if you look at polling data. So um, you know, the, you know. My question, and I know I was asking for hopeful things, and Ruth is going to give us some hope in a second, uh, is that it's hard to do that if one side is indeed trying and the other side is saying, no, you are destroying the country, you're the enemies, and we want to lock you up. I mean, they're, 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 you know, one party saying lock up the other party and one party not saying that. It's not just a difference of opinion over climate change. It's a difference of opinion in how we talk about ourselves. But let me go to Ruth. Okay. So on the hopeful uh, note, if you consider, so um, 2019 was a uh, global record for nonviolent mass protests. 
And there is a new wave and it's uh, not only young people, though young people are very uh, involved with, especially with climate protests. In Chile, in 2019, there were the largest uh, protests about uh, around economic inequality since the, the, the military dictatorship, since the 1980s. And that, those protests gave confidence to people and kind of clarified agendas leading to uh, the recent election as president, there was a kind of a relitigation of the Pinochet military dictatorship uh, where you had uh, a neoliberal businessman uh, up for president praising Pinochet versus um, uh, a 35 year old progressive former labor activist and that labor activist won. And, and so we see all around the world, uh, farmers protesting Modi, uh, Nigerians protesting police brutality, and I think we're ripe in the United States for a new round of nonviolent protests. That's been a big lever uh, of resistance in history. Okay, well, that's a wrap. You get the last word. It's a hopeful word. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, all of you um, out here. We, got, we have to stop. Uh, please read and buy the books of these three smart people and look for them on Twitter. A big thank you to all three of you for taking the time to join us at Crosscut Festival this year and for a really fascinating conversation. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to David, Rebecca, Ruth, and Stephen for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. The event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. And Chris Novich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to CrossCut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9, Seattle's PBS station. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media, I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.